The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. There are a few topics that are more fascinating and mysterious than the history of life on Earth. We all learn about it in school, and then we forget a lot of what we've learned. <laughs> we also discover that what we've learned becomes outdated as scientists make new discoveries. Our guest on this episode is paleontologist and evolutionary biologist Henry G., who is the senior editor at the science journal Nature. And Henry is also the author of several books, the latest of which is called A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 Billion Years in 12 Pithy chapters. Henry, we thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for thanks for letting me in. Why did you decide to write the book and how can you condense 4.6 billion years in 12 chapters? I was really intrigued by that. I thought, okay, I can handle this. <laughs> um, well, the, uh, uh, the, the, first, the first answer is um, I'd always had this idea in the back of my mind to do a, a kind of uh, quick, easy uh, history of life on Earth. Uh, I'm not the first person to do it, but it was at the back of my mind, you know, uh, in the shed uh, behind the barbecue and and the and the rusty bike and and everything, and just got stuck there with all the lumber until a <laughs> colleague a colleague suggested to be uh, at work. Henry, he said, that's my name. That's why he called me Henry, and we know each other quite well. He said, um, "Why don't you?" He said, "Write a book celebrating all the wonderful uh, fossil." Uh, creatures that I've overseen to publication in my many, many years at Nature. And I'd just written a book and said, I'm not going to write another book, which is what I always say after I've written a book. Uh, my, <laughs> my, 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 wife, um, my wife nods indulgently and said, yes, that's nice, dear. Would you like a cup of tea? Uh, but so, so I, went to, I went away and wrote the book. Uh, uh, but it was a bit more convoluted than that. But after uh, many conversations and writes and rewrites and advice from my fantastic agent, Jill Grinberg, it turned into the book that you see. And it was basically a very simple book. So you have to go through all the long complications before you get to the simple book you were going to do anyway. And the answer to the second question is I left out all the boring bits. Uh, the, the history of life on Earth is very long. And I did work out that if the Earth had a week per page diary, it would be 200,000 billion pages long or something very large. Wow. And m most of it wouldn't have anything interesting on it. So I just um, took out the exciting bits uh, uh, and um, made it into a story. Uh, and the great thing is, with a bit of editing, the, life, the history of life on Earth is a terrific story. Uh, and I felt that nobody had actually done it like a novel, uh, as a story with uh, cliffhangers and characters, as it were, and uh, heroes and villains um, and exciting bits. Uh, so that's, um, that's that, I think. But you must stop me uh, if I go on a bit, because 
I do like the sound of my own voice and I will go on and on and on until physically restrained. So don't feel uh, that you don't hold back if you need to butt in. Well, you know what? You have so much good information. We yeah. just want to hear you hear you uh, give it oh, to us. D- don't encourage me. I won't be able to get my head out the door afterwards. <laughs> okay. Well, what myths do you want to dispel right off the bat about life? Um, I don't know about what myth I'd like to dispel. Uh, I think the myth um, that, um, yeah, yeah, actually, the myth I'd like to dispel is that everything was kind of foreordained or easy or it was just a simple progression from simple to complex and it was always going to happen that way as a kind of manifest destiny. Um, uh, one thing that you you uh, learn when uh, reading about this is that the earth is itself a character and tends to throw up all sorts of uh, curveballs uh, and tries to kill off life at, um, at every opportunity, not consciously, of course, uh, but life in its long history has had to contend with rapidly changing conditions at various times in the Earth's history. The Earth has been a ball of magma, um, a world of water, although without Kevin Costner on it. Uh, that's not a millennials won't get that joke. <laughs> uh, and uh, or a jungle from pole to pole or completely frozen solid. Uh, for millions of years and life throughout all of that has contended with that and evolved to become more efficient and more complex but there was nothing in this that was foreordained it just kind of happened uh, in terms of narrative arc it's it's more like a kind of anime rather than a not a traditional novel in which it's just one thing after another uh, but if life had a motto it would be whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger Wow. Wow. You know, you have studied the earth from its beginning, and I'd love for you to put the current climate crisis into perspective for us. Well, first of all, I should say the current climate is absolutely real. Uh, The amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, now is, uh, in terms of its concentration, is greater than at any time in the past 800,000 years. So, Uh, And it's now beyond any doubt that uh, it's uh, been put there by people burning fossil fuels. uh, And that's the cause of the uh, carbon dioxide, which has warmed the atmosphere, which uh, warms up the ocean and causes a lot of unusual uh, climate and weather events. However, I'm not one of those who goes around saying, it's an emergency, it's a catastrophe, it's all terrible. Uh, Because I'm a paleontologist, so I tend to look at these in perspective. Um, So when I see slogans that say, save the planet, I think, hmm, I get out my T-shirt that says, stop plate tectonics now, uh, because the planet doesn't need saving. The planet will go on quite happily, uh, whether we're on it or not. Uh, What we need to save is ourselves. Uh, That's who we need to save. And it's uh, what we need to do is make sure that the uh, the earth can provide us with all the things we need to stay alive, such as fresh air and clean water and enough food to eat uh, and and stop poisoning our own well, as it were. Because one slogan that is true is there is no planet B uh, and we have to... um, (laughs) 
do that. So although I'm I'm not one to run around and scream and shout, I think the uh, the issue is serious. Um, in the short term, it's extremely serious. In the long term, it doesn't matter a hill of beans. Uh, in the medium term, we probably won't be there anyway. Uh, but um, if we're going to uh, live on the earth and get up in the morning and put one foot in front of the other and eat breakfast and go to work and do all the other things, uh, we have to uh, try and keep the climate uh, within limits if we can. We may not be able to do much now. I have a feeling that it's somewhat too late and what we need to do is concentrate on adapting to climate and that is going to create a lot of um, social and political problems a lot of mass migration of people which is happening and that's causing problems throughout the world and uh, I think people in general have to be a bit more welcoming but that's my that's just my view we thank you for being part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners. You know, we always try to tell you about things that will help improve your life. And our sponsor, ZocDoc, is one of those things. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. They treat almost every condition under the sun. You know, it's frustrating to go to a doctor's appointment expecting to be able to fully explain your symptoms, condition, and worries only to find that the doctor wants to hurry you out of their office. Instead of listening to you intently, the doctor is checking the clock. But on ZocDoc, you'll find quality doctors who focus on you, listen to you, and prioritize your care. I've used ZocDoc several times to find doctors, and I have never been disappointed. I love how ZocDoc lets you check a doctor's availability and book an appointment as soon as the same day if there's an opening. Thousands of doctors and medical professionals on ZocDoc are there to help you. ZocDoc helps you find the ones that specialize in the care you need and deliver the type of experience you want. When you're not feeling your best and just trying to hold it together, finding great care shouldn't take up your energy. And that's where ZocDoc comes in. Using their free app that millions of users rely on, you can find the right doctor that meets your needs and fits your schedule. Book an appointment with a few taps in their app and start feeling better faster with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com NTM and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z. D-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash N-T-M. ZocDoc dot com slash N-T-M. If you have a symptom that you'd really like to get checked out, don't put it off anymore. Just go to ZocDoc dot com slash N-T-M and download the ZocDoc app for free. So you're not concerned about the earth continuing, but we maybe should be a little bit concerned about human life not continuing if we don't learn to adapt then? Uh, that, that's correct. I mean, the Earth is a large planet and we're like tiny microbes skittering, skittering around on its skin. The Earth can kind of brush us off if it wants, uh, anytime it chooses. Or there could be an asteroid whizzing in from space. Um, there, there are many, uh, and all species, all species in the end become extinct. Uh, and human beings are, are, are one species among millions. Um, we will become extinct eventually, although I think we're not doing ourselves any favours because um, we are rather dominant within our own habitat patch, which is the Earth. And species that become very dominant within, within a habitat patch tend to um, 
become extinct rather quickly. Uh, in other words, there may come a time when no matter what we do, we're going to become extinct very soon. And I tend to think that we have already past that stage. Well, I didn't write that in the book. I've just been thinking about that more lately. I wrote an article in Scientific American a few weeks ago that seems to have um, scared the trousers off everybody in many different languages. Uh, but um, I've got to kind of substantiate my arguments. That might be my next book. I know you say that by the year 2100, less than 80 years from now, the population of Earth will be less than it is today. So what's happening that will lessen the population and will it ever increase again after that? Um, Well, uh, that is just one projection uh, that by 2100, the population will be less than it is today. Demographers, who are people who study population trends, like all scientists, you get two demographers in a room and now have three opinions. Um, but it's certainly the case that the, uh, the rate of increase of the human population is slowing down. It was at its peak in 1968. It was over 2% a year. Uh, and that was when Paul Ehrlich wrote his book, The Population Bomb, which was warning about overpopulation. But now it's only half that rate of increase. That means it's still increasing but the rate of increase is less, it's slowing down. And there will become a moment in mid-century, in the 2060s, uh, when the uh, when the population will top out at about 10 or 11 billion. And after that, it'll decline. And my feeling is it'll decline and decline and decline very rapidly uh, to a very small amount and then eventually fade out in a few hundred to a thousand years. How much of a risk do asteroids or pandemics like we're currently facing pose to to people? And are they bigger threats in your mind than climate change? Well, there's a book I'm about to read, which I um, by a chap called Kyle Harper called Plagues Upon the Earth. And it's a it's a huge, great academic chunk. So I've got to kind of gird my loins and get myself in my comfy chair. Um, It does look uh, like a large book. It it is quite a serious doorstep. But And and, uh, Dr. Harper talks about the history of plagues uh, on the earth. Um, uh, There there have been times when um, uh, various uh, plagues have uh, have wiped out large amounts of humanity, but no plague has ever come along that will destroy humanity completely because uh, humanity, there's always people who escape it. There are always people who are genetically resistant to it for some reason or another. Uh, even the Black Death um, of the 14th century that managed to wipe out half the people in Europe, it didn't wipe out humanity. Uh, Harper's book actually was written before the COVID crisis, so he, it wasn't a COVID book. He only managed to slip a bit in at the end. Um, and we're, we're managing to get that out of our, get out through this crisis because we have science and vaccination programs and uh, social policy to uh, mitigate the problem. So I don't think um, plagues will wipe us out. Asteroids could. Um, I think there is an asteroid that's due to, to whiz past. Um, uh, shaving past the Earth 
uh, fairly soon, but I think it's quite a small one, uh, about 40 metres in diameter. I've got to look this up. But there, there are more and more near-Earth asteroids discovered all the time, and that's because people are looking for them. And I think there is now a space mission to go along and kind of perturb an asteroid in its orbit to make it go away. Um, so we do have the technology, but there's always it only takes one. You know, it only takes one to get through. Um, and it could be that uh, there is an increased increased flux of asteroids uh, coming into the solar system, part of the same family of the one that did in the dinosaurs uh, 66 million years ago. Uh, we have some technology to evade this sort of thing, um, but of course it only takes one. My, my feeling is that the extinction of humanity will be largely um, due to intrinsic features of the species uh, and uh, rather than external factors. You mentioned dinosaurs just then, and I'd love for you to expand a little bit on the connection between the dinosaurs of the past and the birds we see flying around today. Oh, well, um, back when I was a lad, uh, and I mean when I was very, very small, um, birds and dinosaurs weren't kind of connected uh, Thomas Henry Huxley, who was um, uh, Darwin's PR man, basically, he uh, speculated that birds might have been related to dinosaurs. Um, but uh, his ideas were kind of put on the back burner. Um, and when I was a, a little uh, chap going to museums for the first time in the 60s, dinosaurs were seen as big, lumbering, brainless creatures that basically they became extinct because they deserved it. Um, but during the 60s and 70s, there was a kind of renaissance, um, uh, mostly led by a, uh, a chap at Yale called John H. Ostrom and his swashbuckling uh, student, Bob Backer. And they found a lot of anatomical connections between birds and dinosaurs um, and showed quite convincingly that uh, birds were very closely related to dinosaurs. Now, there were quite a lot of opponents to this idea, and there's still one or two holdouts that birds are basically the descendants of dinosaurs. Um, but the evidence now is, I think, pretty inescapable. And one of the uh, pleasures I had at Nature was publishing the first account of dinosaurs with feathers. In fact, I was there when that was kind of that became known to a Western audience. It was at a meeting of the American Museum in the American Museum of Natural History in New York City in uh, 96, I think, of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, uh, which is an annual meeting. It mostly takes place in the States. And there we were in the uh, hall of um, the Pacific Northwest with, with totem poles, uh, having um, beer and peanuts when this fellow, a Chinese scientist, came around showing off this rather scruffy photographic print of a dinosaur with feathers and everyone was very very excited by this including john h ostrom who predicted this and he was very elderly at the time of the cane and he saw this and just sat down uh, he was completely speechless and i remember talking to him now this is of course the time as a journalist when you should be handing business cards to uh, chinese scientists who come in from nowhere with pictures of feathered dinosaurs but of course as is always the way, I'd run out of business cards. So being a very, 
being uh, as a, as being uh, ha- having lots of initiative, I found a, a torn off piece of beer mat and wrote my credentials and handed it to uh, the Chinese scientist, uh, Professor Peiji Chen. And in due course of time, he and his colleagues sent us all the feathered dinosaurs. Now, 15 years later, I happened to be in China and I was in Nanjing at the Institute of Geology and Paleontology. Uh, Nanjing's a beautiful city. It's just like everything you imagine of a Chinese city. It's all hilly with beautiful trees and lakes and ponds and looks like a willow pattern plate. Anyway, I was standing on the top of the hill on the campus with the director uh, of the institute who'd just taken me to the strong room to show me the actual fossil of the first feathered dinosaurs because I'd never seen it. I'd only seen pictures. And we come out and we, we come out of the building, we're standing next to it, and there we could see down the hill this little old man toiling up the hill. And the director said, oh, that's Professor Chen. And he came to the top of the hill uh, and we shook hands and he got out his pocketbook and in his pocketbook was the little piece of torn off cardboard with my address details that I'd given to him all those years before, which was... um kind of a moment that sticks in your makes you tear up really um so uh that was um the birds and dinosaurs there's there's no doubt at all now that birds are uh uh, the the descendants of dinosaurs specifically a very small uh, a very small dinosaurs called theropods small active dinosaurs and a lot of dinosaurs did have feathers um even as chicks or some as grown-ups uh uh, now they didn't fly necessarily but a lot of them had feathers there were some dinosaurs that were about as aerodynamic as a sack of spanners but they still had feathers so feathers weren't evolved specifically for flying we all learned about dinosaurs in school but like you mentioned at the start of that answer we think of them as just kind of brainless and cool and yeah just you know <laughs> they, like they're they're fun to think about or identify <laughs> but we don't really think about the impact that they've had on humanity so tell us a little bit about the positive impact that they have had on on earth um, well, in terms of society, I mean, the, the fascination that dinosaurs exert, do you mean? Uh, or the fact that they have just disappeared, allowing us to evolve. Um, oh, that, you know what, uh, that, that just either. cut out, Both, I'm sorry. Simultaneously, sequentially. Um, which would you like me to answer, their social impact or the, or the evolutionary impact of dinosaurs on humanity? You know what, how about both? Well, um, there's a fellow called Borea Sachs who wrote a uh, book called Dinomania, which is all about trying to answer the question of why it is we find dinosaurs so fascinating. Um, And his thesis is dinosaurs become associated with kind of national character. Um, The first dinosaurs were identified in England uh, at the height of empire and were seen as kind of majestic and imperial. Um, and then dinosaurs were identified in the United States um, and were uh, were in the Wild West and were seen as part of the expansion of the West. So dinosaurs tend to become, we tend to identify as dinosaurs as, as kind of national characters. But why it is that small children love dinosaurs, I really don't know. I mean, I, with like most children, could um, probably name 10 dinosaurs before I was potty trained. Actually, I couldn't because when I was a child, dinosaurs weren't popular. My son, before he was potty trained, could identify 10 different dinosaurs. Uh, Some people grow out of it. The 
dinosaurs that in not the potty training um and uh but there are some people who never grow out of it and love love dinosaurs i think it's because they're like dragons and then you know i, I remember you know, jurassic park which is what now 20 30 years ago now um it's made such an impact but when i was very small dinosaurs weren't at all popular i'm trying to find a book on my shelf no, I forget that. When I was very when I was very small, dinosaurs weren't at all popular. Um, I've got a book which was given to me age five, called the Look and Learn Book of the Wonders of Nature, uh, and it's got lots of amazing animals and plants and things in, but no dinosaurs. Now, if it were given to somebody today, it'd be full of dinosaurs. However, there's a picture of dinosaurs on the back, and there is no explanation for these pictures. There's no caption. There's no explanation at all. They were completely mysterious. Um, I know this because I still got the book and I've looked everywhere for this caption, but it's not there. Um, but I think it's because in the 70s, dinosaurs were seen as active, intelligent, predatory. Uh, they became to be seen as uh, more exciting. And of course, they were they had a kind of frisson because they were ferocious and dangerous, but also extinct. So it's as if you could, um, there was a glass wall between us and dinosaurs, so we could enjoy dinosaurs and enjoy their fierceness, but within, with absolutely no danger to ourselves. A bit like watching a horror movie, you know, you know that the vampire isn't real. I mean, you enjoy the feeling of horror, but you know that you can switch it off and go to bed afterwards. What do you think is the most fascinating creature to have lived on Earth? Oh, gosh, um, lots and lots. There are lots and lots, but my favourite is an animal called Lystrosaurus. Now, 250 million years ago, there was a mass extinction caused by massive volcanic eruptions, which took place over several hundred thousand years. And the effects of these wiped out almost all life on Earth, uh, but not entirely. In the succeeding Triassic period, one of the first animals to, to live around live was this creature called Lystrosaurus, which was a distant cousin of ourselves. It was a distant cousin of mammals. Now, Lystrosaurus was an opportunist. It was like weeds on a bombsite. Um, uh, for a while, uh, 19 out of 20 animals that you would have found them would have been a Lystrosaurus of one sort or another. And the reason... I didn't have any pictures in the book, so I had to make pen pictures. So I, I described Lystrosaurus as having the body of a pig, because it was about the size of a pig, um, the eat anything, go anywhere attitude of a golden retriever, and the head of a an electric can opener. So it had these massive jaws that it just shoveled everything into um, and wasn't at all fussy. And it lived all over the world for millions of years before other uh, animals had a chance to kind of evolve. Um, so it was kind of my hero. Lystrosaurus saved the planet, even though it was very ugly. I mean, only a mother could have loved it. <laughs> it, it had this, it had this peculiar flat face. Its, its face was wider than it was. Its head was wider than it was deep, like it spent a lot of time chasing parked cars. I don't think it was very bright, but it was very, um, very tough. I am so curious to know how your research on life has impacted your spirituality, just hearing about all of these amazing miracles, for lack of a better word, that have occurred to make us who we are today. It does one, it, it, it makes one feel properly insignificant that one is a very, very small part of life on earth. And I don't think that's a bad thing. 
you have to appreciate that um, human beings are a passing thing. And one of the problems I have with the environmental movement, now I could be misrepresenting them horribly, and if I do, I apologise, is they tend to think of themselves as much more important than they are, um, because nobody is really that important. Um, and to the to the end of the, I, I put this at the end of the book. I hadn't intended to do this, but you know, when you're writing a book, your views change. And I referenced a book, one of my favourite books, which is a science fiction novel called Star Maker by a, a man called Olaf Stapledon, who uh, died in 1950, and he wrote this book in 1937. Now, Stapledon was a pacifist, but he'd seen the First World War up close. He, was a, he didn't fight, but he was, a, he was an ambulance driver on the Western Front. So he saw a lot of horrific things. Um, and like many authors who came out of war, the only way he could express it was through fantasy and science fiction. Everyone from Tolkien to Kurt Vonnegut, you know, Vonnegut was in the bombing of Dresden. Tolkien served in the Battle of the Somme. Um, the same with Stapleman. So he wrote these amazing science fiction novels. And in Star Maker, which he wrote in 1937, just as the world was going into another war, he wrote this a novel in which a, the protagonist, who's had an argument with his spouse, walks out of their little cottage and sits on a hillside at night. And he has this vision in which he's, and the whole book is his vision, in which he's travelling through the cosmos and he meets all kinds of alien species and he gets uh, a knowledge of the entire history of the cosmos from beginning to end. And eventually uh, he... Um, is part of a communal mind. I mean, this sounds really weird. And he meets the creator. And our universe is just one of many universes. It's not even the best one. There are many toy universes that are broken on the floor of the workshop. And at the end of the book, well, he comes back to himself on his hillside and goes back and makes it up with his wife. And they, they don't live happily ever after because there's a war starting. And... So there is this fellow who's, who's seen 400 billion years of history. That's much longer than the universe. And it seems like a very forbidding novel, but it's actually quite short, but it is breathtaking in scope. And he asks, how can an ordinary person face up to such inhuman scale and face up to the inhumanity of war? And he says there are two lights for guidance, and they seem contradictory. And the first is our little glowing atom of community, just people being nice to each other. And the other one is the cold light of the stars, which seems strange. And in which matters such as world wars and indeed people are of negligible account. And he concludes, and I quote this in the book, I hope you don't mind me quoting it here, in fact, even if you do mind, I'm still going to quote it. <laughs> please, he says, please. He says, strange, but it seems more, not less urgent, to play some part in this struggle, this brief effort of animalcules striving to win for their race some increase of lucidity before the ultimate darkness. And at the end, and, and that, and then I finished the book with this sentence, these two sentences, therefore do not despair. 
the earth abides and life is living yet. So in terms of uh, one's spirituality, as it were, I think it gives one a salutary lesson in one's place in the universe. But nevertheless, even though your place seems insignificant, you must do what you can to strive for lucidity, to strive to uh, do what you can in the time that you have. Henry, you know, our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that you've learned about life on Earth, the history of life on Earth, or just life itself that you had to learn the hard way that you'd maybe like to pass on to somebody else so they don't have to go through that? Well, it's not easy writing a book. Uh, everybody thinks they have a book in them and some rather dyspeptic agent once said that's probably where it should stay Uh, but um, when I wrote my first book about 30 years ago grizzled crusty old authors would say oh you've got to write about five or six before anyone takes any notice well I'm that grizzly crusty old author but if you are a writer just starting out don't despair what you have to do is you just have to keep on doing it. Um, and that is what I've learned. So if I had to tell my myself 30 years ago, uh, happily writing a book, I'd say, keep on doing it. Just take one book at a time and eventually someone will take notice. But really, you just have to, to learn it, to, to write books, to please yourself. That's your audience uh, or your dog, because dogs are easily pleased. Um, uh, <laughs> But that, that's a lesson about me, about about life on Earth itself. Well, I think it's because nothing is certain. Uh, life uh, goes on and life is, is very good at going on. But in the short term, nothing is certain. And what you have to do with every day you have is to make the best of it that you can. Um, and, uh, and, and try and be nice to people, really, and try and, and, and help in some tiny way. Uh, people get through life. Uh, We're recording this during the pandemic and it's been very difficult for a lot of people. Um, So do what you can. Volunteer at your vaccination centre. Promote vaccination. Try and convince your friends who don't want to be vaccinated that really it's quite all right and they should. Um, And uh, try and and, and visit your elderly neighbour and that sort of thing. Well, Henry, we cannot all that, all that kind of cheesy stuff like that. Yes, we, we agree. And that's it, a great yeah. that's a great lesson. We really love that. And we love everything that you had to say. You you make all of this so much more interesting than they did in history class. <laughs> well, <laughs> well seriously. Thank you. you. I, I, I do say to my academic colleagues and to my students, I say, this book should do half your assignments for you. So you should really buy two. (laughs) We love that. Our thanks again to Henry G, whose new book is called A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 Billion Years in 12 Pithy Chapters. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. And you've been listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 